0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed Amy Maholovic? I am your host, Bill Huffman. On this weekly podcast, I take a deep dive into old cases you may be unfamiliar with and others that you may already know a little bit more about. The story I am bringing you today is an oldie but a goodie. This case has been heavily covered locally and there have been some really great podcasts about the murders. The perspective that I am bringing is from someone who considers themselves a summer person up north. When you tell someone you're going on vacation to Michigan, they will generally ask you what part, and inevitably, you end up holding up your hand and pointing exactly where you'll be staying. My family has been vacationing in the Glen Lake area for longer than this case has gone unsolved. So in honor of my favorite place in the world, I am bringing you a case from northern Michigan. So on this week's episode, you can make your own conclusions on who killed the Robeson family, a.k.a. the Goodhart Murders. Idyllic, serene, picturesque. These are just a few words that can describe northern Michigan. The state has been tied to some infamous cases, such as the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, and the Oakland County child killings. Historical events such as the rise of the auto industry, Motown, and the 1967 Detroit riots are generally associated with the state of Michigan. The national parks own a lot of the property in the north, and if you want to see what life looked like 80 years ago, this would be an excellent place to visit. Goodhart is a small village of roughly 500 people, something that can be said for a lot of the communities up north. Good sits on Lake Michigan, right between Mackinac City and Petoskey. And a Petoskey stone is a rock and a fossil, generally pebble-shaped. It is tradition, uh, when you visit the lake, to search the beaches for Petoskeys. Petoskey stones aren't as abundant as uh, they once were when I was a kid, because the tourism in the area has increased over the years. But they can still be found on most beaches in northern Michigan. Where the Robeson family stayed would have been in the heart of where most of these fossils could be found. It is thought that the movement of the frozen lake ice acting on the shore during the winters is thought to turn over the stones, exposing new petoskeys at water's edge each spring. In 1965, the Petoskey was actually named the State Stone of Michigan. I fondly look back as a child, searching for stones on the beach, and I can only hope that the Robesons would have participated in the same activity. I want to think they spent their last day playing on the beach and strolling the lakeside looking for Petoskeys. The day was probably pristine, and the horror they were about to endure was a thought that would never have crossed their minds. Goodhart is small. I mean, real small. If you Google Goodhart, you will see that they're a lakeside community that boasts about having Bob Seeger as a visitor. The location of this small village is, again, in one of the most beautiful areas in the state, if not the country. Michigan has some very scenic roads, And M119 is one of the best. The road features lake views and is highlighted by the Tunnel of Trees. The road itself has been ranked among the best scenic roads in the nation, and the Tunnel of Trees is not only beautiful in the spring, but in the fall, the foliage colors rival some of the best. M-119 begins at the north end of Petoskey, but it doesn't officially become the Tunnel of Trees until the north of Harbor Springs. From there, the state highway becomes very narrow, running 20 miles along a spectacular bluff overlooking Lake Michigan. My family grew up traveling M-22, which runs up the Leelanau Peninsula from Empire to Northport, an absolutely stunning drive in its own right. Most people that vacation in the area come from cities like Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland. It is more common than not for these families to name their homes. The Robesons named their log cottage Somerset and had their name prominently displayed on their driveway. Fun fact I learned listening to the Already Gone podcast on this case that's hosted by Nina Instead and that was that the original sign from the cottage actually hangs in the Petoskey Historical Society. Which, if you are ever interested or in that part of the state, you can go and check that out. The part of the state where Good Heart is located is extremely desolate. And the light pollution is, to say the least, minimal. It's such a dark Area that you can actually look up in the sky and see the Milky Way without a telescope. Satellites passing through the sky are a common sight these days. Back in 1968, it would have just been the moon and the stars dotting the sky. I want to read you an article from the AP that details the crime as they were discovered. Quote, Police on Tuesday tried to unearth traces of the now cold trail of a killer or killers who shot to death all six members of a wealthy Detroit family in their summer home about a month ago. Michigan State Police dispatched their mobile crime laboratory to the Lake Michigan cottage of Richard C. Robeson, 42, who were found shot to death Monday along with his wife and four children. Police said a preliminary investigation indicated the six had been dead for about a month. A caretaker who said that he last saw the family on June 4th is the one that discovered the bodies. It was a mass murder, said Lieutenant Colonel Melvin Kaufman, Deputy Director of the Michigan State Police. Meanwhile, Emmett County Prosecutor Wayne Richard Smith and Undersheriff Clifford Fossmore issued a joint statement saying, quote, We feel these murders were premeditated. Captain Guy A. Babcock, who has been assigned to the case, said there have been no clues and no apparent motives discovered yet. Quote, We won't be completely sure of anything until the crime lab gets here. Let me interject real fast. This is 1968, so one can only imagine the archaic investigative tools they were stuck with. Anyway, Babcock said autopsies would be performed and that until then it could not be determined what type of weapon or weapons were used or how many shots had been fired. The other victims were Robeson's wife, Shirley, 40, their sons, Richard, 19, Gary, 16, and Randall, 12, and daughter, Susan, 7. Robeson lived in the Lathrop village near Detroit where he ran an advertising agency and published Impresario magazine, which covered the local arts. Chauncey A. Bliss, owner and caretaker of Blisswood, the resort area in Goodhart, found the bodies after a suggestion by a neighbor. He said Mrs. Russell Moore of Coldwater was living nearby and came to him and complained of an odor coming from the Robeson Cottage secluded at the end of a narrow, twisting road in a heavily wooded area at the foot of a steep embankment. Bliss said earlier this month that his father, Chauncey P. Bliss, had noticed bullet holes in the window of the cottage and even checked under the house after he smelled a strong odor. Now, Bliss said that he disregarded his father's suggestion to investigate further because he thought the window shots were probably the result of kids using pellet guns. Now, two cars were in the driveway. One was a rented Chrysler and the other, the family's Ford station wagon. Police said a note was found near the door indicating that the family was planning a plane trip to Kentucky and were leaving on June 25th. The note read, We'll be back July 7th or 8th. The discovery of the murdered family happened nearly a month after the crimes were committed, so it's hard to say if they were killed during the daytime or under the cover of night. The area is so densely populated with trees that the sounds of gunshots could have been muffled, whether it was day or night. Somerset Cottage was also located in one of the more secluded areas of the resort and from all reports was not visible from the road. The home being where it was led some investigators to believe that the killer must have targeted the family. In fact, it was announced by the police soon after the discovery of the bodies that they believed it was a premeditated crime. So who would want to murder a family? Was it a crime of opportunity? That was a theory, but again, since this house was so secluded, that almost throws that theory right out the window. How could someone bludgeon a child to death? let alone after they had already killed most everyone else with a gun. So what was the significance of this overkill? The prime suspect has always been Joe Scalaro, Richard Robeson's business partner, but he was never brought up on charges. There are some significant things that connect this man to the crime, and I will cover those shortly. But if he didn't do it, who did? Other suspects range from the caretaker to the mafia. Anyone that's been listening or watching true crime stories know that the person that finds the body, or bodies in this case, is always considered a suspect. The mafia even got roped into the case due to the rumors that Mr. Robeson had been part of some deals that weren't always on the up-and-up. I'll address the latter first. Why the hell would the mafia go all the way to a vacation home to off a whole family. Plus, a victim's child is not usually a target for anyone connected to the mob. Not to say that some rogue gangster didn't find his way to Goodhart, but the chances of that are as likely as Jimmy Hoffa being found, well, ever. The caretaker is always a good option, too, since he was the first to find the murdered family. He was also suffering from grief as he had lost his son in an auto accident in the months prior to the killing. Some say that he could have killed the family over the way he was treated after the death of his son, but most experts disagree. He may have had his reasons to be disgruntled, but not enough to kill the whole entire family. The idea that the family was murdered by one of Michigan's most infamous serial killers was also bandied about. The family was considered to be very close-knit and happy. Channel 9 and 10 from up north did a series on Michigan mysteries, and I'm going to play a clip from their recent broadcast about this infamous case. It's widely considered the most notorious crime in northern
1: Michigan's history family of six found murdered in their Emmett County cottage. It has been
2: 46 years since, and still, the Robeson family murders are unsolved. Evan Dean takes us through the many twists and turns of this case in part three of our special series, Mysteries
1: of Northern Michigan.
2: It kind of seems like a place apart.
1: A picturesque town along the shore of Lake Michigan.
2: I know Northern Michigan is beautiful, but it's particularly
3: beautiful.
1: An Emmett County getaway spot known for its beauty but also made famous by a tragedy that happened decades ago.
3: Even to this day, it's hard to imagine that something this horrendous could have happened in a sleepy little town like Goodheart.
1: It was the summer of 1968. A well-to-do family from Oakland County was spending their summer at a vacation home that once sat right along this empty property. But in July, the Robeson Summer Cottage turned into the scene of a gruesome mass murder.
3: It was a pretty grisly scene. They'd been shot, and uh, the young daughter had been bludgeoned to death.
1: All six members of the Robeson family, Richard and Shirley, and their four kids, Richie, Gary, Randy, and Susan, all found dead. Even more horrific, their bodies weren't discovered until weeks after they were murdered.
3: They were uh, badly deteriorated. It was pretty ugly scene.
2: Who would do such a brutal crime, and what could the motive possibly be?
3: The
1: local deputies weren't used to cases like this they quickly called in the Michigan State Police.
2: It obviously wasn't a murder-suicide, they knew that. So they started looking at the neighbors. Uh, There was a tree trimmer that had been hired to trim their trees. They interviewed him and all of his helpers. I know they just about emptied any kind of halfway house, mental institution, they interviewed people at the state hospital. But all the
1: while, police were actually starting to zero in on one man.
3: Their personal interest at the time, Mr. Robinson's business partner, uh, Mr. Scalero.
1: This downstate man, Joe Scalero, who worked as a salesman for Richard Robinson's advertising company. The evidence against him quickly
3: started piling up. There's time lapses in his alibi. It looked like Richard
2: had just discovered that Joe had been stealing money from the company.
3: It appears to have been some embezzling. There was like $60,000 missing.
1: And that's not all. Investigators uncovered as they dug deeper to Joe Scalero.
2: He was also an amateur marksman. He would travel around the state of Michigan and compete in trap shooting events and win.
3: They went to a firing range where Mr. Scalero used to shoot, and they found 22 shell casings that matched the ones that were found at the scene of the crime.
1: After a 15-month investigation, police presented their case against Joe Scalero to the Emmett County prosecutor. But weeks went by, and an arrest warrant was never issued.
3: Well, there was quite a bit of evidence at the time Had they had the murder weapon and had a few more fingerprints, I think Mr. Nago, the prosecutor, probably would have issued warrants.
1: Joe Scalero was a free man. It looked like the Robeson family murders would go unsolved, but a few years later, a break in the case.
3: A
2: ambitious prosecutor down in Oakland County decided, hey, the the victims were from here. Maybe I can get an indictment.
1: And they did. In March of 1973, Joe Scalero was to be arrested and charged with murdering the Robesons. But Joe had learned of the impending charges, and when police went to arrest him, a stunning discovery.
2: The officers went inside and they found him dead by his own hand. He had shot himself in the head with a Beretta handgun.
1: The prime suspect in the Robeson family murders had taken his own life and left behind was a lengthy suicide note.
3: He says I'm a liar and a cheat and a phony, but I didn't kill the Robinsons. Do you believe what he said? He failed three polygraphs. He says he's a liar and a cheat and a phony. You figure it out.
1: Almost 41 years have passed. New technology has emerged. Evidence has been retested for DNA, but it hasn't helped. And more than four decades after their deaths, the Robeson family murders are still unsolved.
3: The case continues to be open. Maybe someday the murder weapon may get discovered. But until that time, it'll stay open and it may remain a mystery for years to come.
1: And for some, one big question still remains.
3: And I've always questioned a family of six, how one person could do it. The question is, did he do it himself or was there somebody involved with him? That's the question.
1: Reporting for Northern Michigan's News Leader, I'm Evan Dean.
2: Author Marty Jo Link says she believes Joe Scalero acted alone in the murder. Police did not comment on whether a specific person has been investigated as a possible accomplice.
0: Up north is a place to go to get away from the monotony of everyday life. Murder just doesn't happen in the north. It's too tranquil for such an act. But apparently not everyone received this memo because... The Robeson family was slaughtered right in their very own cottage. The solitude of Goodheart, Michigan, was disrupted by this unthinkable crime. The story of a family being murdered quickly gained traction nationally, and everyone wanted to know who killed the Robeson family. Stories began circulating rapidly. A Detroit family of six murdered on vacation. Family killed on the shore of Lake Michigan. Six bodies found at Blisswood. The murders were by far the worst that Michigan had ever seen, and police believed that there was more than one weapon used in this multiple slain. Mrs. Robeson was found lying in the living room with a blanket placed over her body. Three of the children's bodies were found in a hallway leading to the bedrooms and the bodies of Robeson and another child were found in a bedroom. Police said Mrs. Robeson was criminally assaulted before her death. As mentioned before, bullet holes were found in the east window of the cottage, and a blood-stained hammer was found outside. The Robeson family was apparently getting ready to leave the cottage because the family car was packed, and a note on the door read that they'd be back on July 7th or 8th. And the caretaker of Blisswood, Chauncey Bliss, said that he was told on June 23rd that they would be flying to Florida soon. And this was probably the reason that the alarm wasn't raised earlier. According to the Petoskey News, Richard Robeson was last seen alive on June 24th, 1968. He visited the home of Chauncey Bliss to pay his respects following the recent death of Bliss's son in a motorcycle accident.
2: 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months. As a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing. She'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity, but to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared.
1: I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth.
2: That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con.
0: As I've mentioned before, Bliss was the caretaker for the Robeson Cottage, which she had built in 1956. Bliss told the Petoskey News Review in a July 25, 1968 article that Robeson left $20 for flowers. Robeson also visited Bliss's parents to express his condolences. At that time, Robeson indicated that the family would be leaving for a few weeks on a trip to Kentucky and to Florida to possibly purchase property. As I've mentioned, there was a note later found on the door mentioning how they would be out of town. In an August 12, 1968 edition of the Petoskey News Review, investigators said they believed the family was murdered in the evening of June twenty-fifth. The six bodies laid scattered around the cabin for more than a month, and this led to kind of a haphazard investigation. As I mentioned before, Chauncey Bliss was also the person that discovered the bodies, And this actually occurred on July 22, 1968, after that neighbor complained of the odor coming from the house. The doors were locked, but Bliss had a key, and he did enter the home. The first thing he encountered was a body covered by a blanket, which you can only assume was Shirley Robeson. During the investigation, Emmett Prosecutor Wayne Richard Smith said... On August 12, 1968, quote, About all we can say at present is that this was a mass type of premeditated murder by persons unknown. But we feel safe in assuming that the person who committed the crime did know the Robesons well enough to plan the act completely, leaving the area without being detected. Emmett County, under Sheriff Clifford Fossmore, led the investigation as Sheriff Richard Zink was out of town at the time. A state police crime lab was on the scene, as I've mentioned before. The bodies were removed the following day and taken to Petoskey for autopsies. Law enforcement and local volunteers began searching the area, but the trail was already a month old, so only one can imagine how cold that trail really was. It was determined that you know, the Robeson family had been shot to death and early evidence had been pointed to the possibility that two different firearms were used in the killing. By July 26, Sheriff Zink had returned to aid the investigation. Many agencies, including the state police, were actively involved in the case. Meanwhile, a funeral for the Robeson family took place on July 26 in Royal Oak, Work on the case was quietly done over the next few weeks, with police releasing new information in an August 12th article in the Petoskey News Review. By this time, police said they did not think someone passing through the area, but someone who knew the family, committed the murders. Bliss built the cottage for the family about 10 years before the murder. And Blisswood was exactly as the name implies, and fit right in with the beauty of the area. Tourists drive the M131 from Harbor Springs to Mackinac City every summer. The road passes through Goodhart, just breezes by Blisswood, and it's not even visible from the road. Nothing happens in places like Goodhart. And according to the paper, that's why people like the Robesons vacationed there. Now, it's been just over 50 years since the gruesome murders of the Robeson family in their picturesque cottage on Lake Michigan. All six members had been shot using two different weapons, and two family members, Richard and his young daughter, Susan, had also been beaten with a hammer. Goodhart, much like towns like Bay Village and other small towns that experience unspeakable tragedies, They end up finding themselves in the front pages of the New York Times or the Chicago Tribune, with stories that kind of give you an overview of what the city may have been like before the crime, but in all reality, it never really gives you a true feeling of what an area was like. According to Marty Link, who wrote the book When Evil Came to Goodheart, she said people were in shock and afraid because it took two weeks before they had a suspect people were afraid that there might be a crazy murderer running loose in northern Michigan. The clues were initially hard to come by. One of the theories tossed around was the murders may be connected to the unsolved killings that have been occurring in the Ann Arbor area. John Norman Collins is a serial killer that was found guilty for one of the, quote, Michigan murders, or the, quote, co murders, as they've come to be known amongst the media and the locals. Collins is allegedly connected to at least seven murders between 1967 and 1969 in the Ypsilanti area. Needless to say, those two years were a terrifying time for the communities around Ann Arbor. Some accounts of Collins actually describe him as Ted Bundy before Ted Bundy. He was known to be good-looking, and on occasion... A charming guy. There were other similarities to Bundy, such as the fact that he would revisit his crimes and sometimes practice necrophilia. Now, the investigation continued, and the break which solved the murder of Karen Byneman came in what can only be considered as lucky. Michigan State Police Corporal David Leake was assigned to the Ypsilanti Post and was a resident of Ypsilanti, residing on Roosevelt Street. Corporal Leake was going on vacation, and his nephew, John Norman Collins, was to take care of the family home while he was away for two weeks. When Leake returned back from vacation, he found things in the house, "Mm," quote, not as they should be. He passed the information along to detectives investigating the murders and discovered that Collins was actually a person of interest. Now, Collins was not immediately arrested, as the evidence against him was initially insufficient for a successful prosecution. But Collins was placed under surveillance and was picked up for questioning on two occasions. It was on July 31, 1969, when Collins was placed under arrest for the murder of Karen Sue At the time, Collins was a senior at Eastern Michigan University, studying, of all things, elementary teaching. Collins was 22 years old at the time of his arrest. After Bynum had been reported missing, an artist made a composite of the man that was observed giving Bynum a ride on the motorcycle. The composite strongly resembled Collins, and Corporal Leake told investigators that Collins did own a motorcycle. Police believe that Collins killed Byneman in Corporal Leek's basement, of all places. When the murder took place, blood had splattered on the basement floor. Collins knew that he had to clean the scene of the murder up and paint it over the area in which the killing had taken place. When Leek returned from vacation, he immediately became suspicious, wondering why his basement floor had been painted. He discovered what appeared to be blood underneath the paint although this turned out to be just varnish. He did report his suspicions to his superiors the state police, and technicians were sent to investigate further. A fingerprint set in wet paint was found to be Collins, and this was part of the evidence used to arrest him, as was blood and hair samples. Once Collins was arrested, lab technicians discovered blood and hair in his 1968 Oldsmobile Cutlass, which matched Bynum's. Investigators spoke to the clerks at the wig shop where Bynum was last seen, and they identified Collins as the person she was with. Another Eastern Michigan co-ed identified Collins as he tried to pick her up and give her a ride on his motorcycle. Collins never admitted to any of the killings, but was sentenced to life without parole with the use of the fiber evidence. If you would like to learn more about the Michigan murders, the Already Gone podcast that I mentioned earlier has a great two-part episode on the case. And as I've mentioned, the community was left uneasy after the murders. But while an arrest wasn't something that ever happened, investigators did identify their prime suspect. A suspect that many believe is the only one who could have committed or would have committed this crime. His name was Joe Scalaro. He was an employee for Richard Robeson's cultural magazine, Impresario. By most accounts, he was smart, a former military sharpshooter, hence the bullet holes. He knew how to use a gun, and perhaps most importantly, he may have had a reason for wanting Richard Robeson dead. There was financial motive. As it became apparent after the murders that Scalaro had been stealing from the business, Scalaro stood out to investigators, so they focused more on him. And the more they worked on Scalaro, the more they came to believe he had to be the killer. According to the news review articles at the time, Scalaro was an employee for Richard Robeson and had been granted almost full control over the businesses prior to the death. It was later discovered that money had been embezzled from those businesses. Scalaro was repeatedly questioned throughout the investigation, but on January 14, 1970, Emmett County Prosecuting Attorney Donald Noggle decided that there was not enough solid evidence to bring the case to trial. Lie detector tests have been known for being inadmissible in court, but I will state the fact that Scalaro did fail three of the tests that he was given. Scalaro's alibi is also unsubstantiated, and there were other connections to the crime scene. According to Marty Link, quote, The only piece of physical evidence besides the shell casings was a bloody footprint, and it was so important that police got a saw and cut the floor that this bloody footprint was on. It was obviously left by the killers, so they checked all of Joe Scolaro's shoes, and they found a match. Unfortunately, the pair of boots that made the match were brand new and had never been worn. But they matched perfectly now that we learn that Joe Scalaro was known to buy two of everything. Two suits, two shoes, two guns, and he probably had a pair of boots that he had two of, but he got rid of the pair he wore the night of the murders. Quote, They learn that he owns the gun that is the exact replica of the gun that they believe killed the Robesons, an AR-7, Link said. They determine that his AR-7 doesn't match, but they do find out is where he likes to target shoot. So they go and visit this place downstate, comb the area with metal detectors, and they find shell casings. They turn them into the crime lab, and they match. According to Link, as far as investigators were concerned, Scolaro needed to be arrested and tried for first-degree murder, but never was. In 1973, Oakland County prosecutors began their own search for answers. They began digging into the embezzlement accusations as a precursor to the murders. Word that an indictment may be handed down reached Joe Scalaro. And according to the paper, this time he decided to handle it on his own terms. Quote, one morning the police down in Birmingham get a 911 call. They show up to an office and they find Joe Scalaro dead by his own hand. Link said, he committed suicide with a 25 caliber Beretta gun. The second gun that was used to kill the Robisons. Before Scolaro killed himself, he had spent five years being considered the number one suspect. The public never understood why he wasn't ever arrested for the murders. But the fact that Scolaro committed suicide on March 8, 1973, kind of led people to believe that he may have been hiding something. Although, in his suicide note, Scolaro denied killing the Robeson family— and an excerpt from the suicide letter says, quote, I am a liar, a cheat, a phony, but I am not a killer. I am scared and sick. The headline from Potosky News Review on March ninth, 1973, said, quote, Robeson murder suspect found dead. The article begins, quote, a Birmingham man who was a prime suspect in the Robeson murders Goodhart apparently committed suicide yesterday in his suburban Southfield business. Joseph Scalaro, the third, 37-year-old former partner of Dick Robison, was found dead at about 3:30 p.m. yesterday. About four and a half years after the six-member Robeson family was murdered while on vacation in a cottage 20 files, 25 miles north of Petoskey, Scalaro's death has tentatively been ruled a suicide by. Oakland County Medical Office, which stated he died of a gunshot wound to the right side of his head. As I mentioned before, a twenty-five caliber automatic pistol was found at the scene. At the scene were also two notes tacked to the door of his office. One was warning his mother not to enter. The note near his body was the one that read, I am a liar, a cheat, and a phony, but not a killer. Now, he also wrote, a handwritten suicide letter that said, P.S. I did not kill the Robesons. It had been an uneasy life for Scolaro since the Robeson family was found dead in July of 1968. It was over the five years that he was still alive that police continually questioned him about the murders and his close ties to the business. Quote, the police told me I did it. He was once quoted as saying to the Detroit Free Press, and they said, quote, If I didn't pull the trigger, I know who did. Shortly before the Goodhart murders, Scalaro had become a major influence in Robeson's advertising and publishing corporation. When Robeson began traveling extensively in 1968, he turned almost full control over to Scalaro. He justified it with a $700 per week raise. Scolaro joined the business in 1965 after an advertising career which included employment with the Birmingham Eccentric. After the murders, Scolaro purchased the businesses, and it was found that it was not financially healthy as once believed. Even though an insurance agency had valued the businesses at $800,000 by an estate analyst, it later became a financial shambles. Scolaro first became a suspect for obvious reasons. One, he had been involved in a business with Robeson that was believed to be thriving, but was found to be in bad financial condition because of shady dealings. Police found that over a three-year period, between thirty dollars and $50,000 was swindled from the prominent Robeson advertising client, Delta Faucet Company. It was also found that before the murders, $60,000 in funds had mysteriously disappeared from the Robeson agency checking account and was never used to pay bills as intended. Two, before he was murdered, Robeson dramatically increased giveaway circulation in his art magazine, Impresario, and used unauthorized full-page ads for an airline to make the magazine appear more prosperous than it was. Robeson allegedly promoted a $100 million scheme that police could never pin down beyond simple schematic drawings. He also became involved with some mysterious people that were never identified by police and made solitary trips to the West Coast and the Detroit airport three weeks prior to his death. The most elusive clue was the gun set given to the Robesons by Scalaro. The set was a matching pair of twenty-five caliber Beretta automatics. The guns were believed to have been used in the murders, but were never found. After two years of investigation by state police detectives and Emmett County Sheriff's Department investigators, they announced that the inquest was completed and sought a murder warrant without publicly naming a suspect. Emmett County Prosecuting Attorney General Frank J. Kelly, however, declined to issue the warrant stating that vital evidence was lacking in the voluminous police report. At that time, Sheriff Zink stated that he believed the killer was familiar with the cottage, that he knew the family, and they knew him. People are still left wondering why charges were never brought to Scolaro. Richard Smith was the Emmett County prosecutor at the time of the murders. Hours after the discovery, he was in the cabin working with investigators, trying to find answers. Smith was considered a lame-duck prosecutor at this time because he did not plan on running for re-election, and so this may have been a reason why charges were never brought. Smith was quoted at the time saying, It was a horrible crime, and in that little place like Goodhart, it was awful. People were locking their doors for their first time in history, and I don't blame them. Smith is one of the original investigators that is convinced that even the, though the case may technically be open, he believes Scalaro was the killer. The cost of a trial for a small community was probably the number one reason the charges were never brought. Smith said, quote, I think number one, the county wasn't interested in the costs. I think they could have afforded it, but they weren't interested in the costs. And then when Oakland County determined they could bring murder charges there... I think that relieved a lot of people in Emmett County, knowing that they would not have to pay for the expense of a public trial taking place there. I think the prosecutor who replaced me had plenty of experience, explains Smith. Since Robeson's case is not legally resolved, it remains an open investigation. So despite Joseph Scalaro not ever being brought to justice, most people can make their own conclusions on who killed the Robeson family. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'll be back next week with another episode of Who Killed? If you know anything about the murder of the Robeson family, please don't hesitate to contact the FBI. Anyone with information can call the FBI at one 800 call FBI or on their website, FBI.gov slash tips. Tipsters can remain anonymous. If you enjoy this independently produced podcast, you can help support the show and independent journalism by clicking on the donate button on the bottom left on who killed Amy You can also support the show by becoming a patron on Patreon. Yes, that's right. Who Killed Amy Maholovic is now on Patreon. And for as little as $5 a month, you can keep the lights in this studio on and the recorders running. Any amount is appreciated, and it will allow me to produce a weekly show. If you could leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, that will also help get the show the attention it deserves. And if you have any information in regards to the murder of Amy Renee Mihaljevic, please don't hesitate to contact 1-800-CALL-FBI. Thank you again. As I mentioned before, be safe.
1: OhioMysteries.com